Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate every Sunday because I'm providing an oasis for culinary sanity. It's my goal to feed your soul. And as I hope you know, I have a passion for anything to do with fabulous food. I, as a certified sommelier, happen to love wine pairings as well. With a bit of mixology thrown in, I will travel for food. I do touch on tech and I combine all of those creative aspects for your gastronomic pleasure. So do stay tuned as there's a full hour of scrumptious conversation ahead. And if you happen to have missed a show, we've made the podcasts more easily downloadable. Just check out chefjamie.com and at the center of the page, you'll find links to multiple platforms. So over the past 15 years that I've been blessed to be on the radio, you will find podcasts galore for everything you need to know, want to learn and wish to make. So once again, find podcasts. And uh, as I'm always serving up seconds, lots of recipe inspiration at chefjamie.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, by the way, and I'd love for you to become a social media friend. You'll find me at Chef Jamie Gwen. So summer is all about bright colors and light flavors, right? And a toast under the blue sky with friends is really what it's all about. So we are celebrating summer here with seasonal ingredients, bold flavors, and many toasts. And I'd like to take a moment today to talk about ratatouille. Now, not the sweet little rat in the movie, Ratatouille, which I actually loved and very much admired for his culinary aptitude, but rather the vibrant French stew that is made best from a bountiful end of summer garden. Now, the sweet squash and the ripe tomatoes and the eggplant at their peak all simmered together make me think of that taste of summer in a pot that you hope to hold on to just a little longer than summer extends. It is really true deliciousness. And by the way, if you're not growing the vegetables yourself, don't fret. I think the farmer's market treasures will sub in just fine. Now, there are many interpretations for ratatouille. Some cooks like to slice the vegetables paper thin and bake until they're very soft, almost like a ratatouille tart and a very classical approach. Others like to cook the vegetables separately. But no matter which way you choose, I like chunks of veggies and I like to meld all the flavors together in layers, either sauteed or roasted together so that their flavor really compounds so that you taste the true essence of each vegetable in each and every bite, but all combined. Now, there are two different methods. One is more like of a lazy summer weekend day method. You do it on top of the stove. And then even easier, if you're short on time, but you have an abundance of summer veggies, well, then I like to use the oven roasting method. Of course, if you're willing to fire up your oven. Now, my ratatouille consists of eggplant, zucchini, 
red bell pepper or yellow or orange bell pepper, which I love, cherry tomatoes, or good vine ripened or even heirloom tomatoes, um, very good quality olive oil, salt, pepper, and then some aromatics like fresh rosemary branches or sprigs of thyme. Oh, and lots and lots of garlic cloves. And for the oven method, which really is easy and you can simply clean out your produce drawer. You just combine all the veggies with olive oil and you spread them on a baking sheet and you season liberally with salt and pepper. And then on a separate baking sheet, you combine the cherry tomatoes, the garlic cloves, and the fresh herbs. Because I like the tomatoes to burst and actually release some of their liquid Their natural water content evaporates and the flavor of the tomato compounds. And then the eggplant, the zucchini, and the bell peppers are roasting on a separate sheet pan. They're a bit drier. And so they start to caramelize around the edges and they don't need the liquid from the tomatoes to permeate them. Oh, and then some red pepper flakes, if you please. And you roast those two sheet pans at 400 degrees for about 30 minutes or so. And you toss the vegetables occasionally. And when you have have a rustic roasted mixture on each sheet pan, you mix them together. And then I have to tell you, it tastes pretty darn good. So there's not much more to do. Now, in the style of Provence, you can make ratatouille the traditional way, and that is in a large Dutch oven or heavy pot on top of the stove. And you start with a liberal amount of olive oil, And here you can add sweet yellow onions that have been diced and you can caramelize them, which is a great benefit. Then you add the eggplant, then slowly cook and add the zucchini, then the red bell peppers, all in stages. And you can remove each vegetable when it's tender, or if you prefer to make a sort of uh, more stew-like mixture, you can leave the vegetables together to cook. Then you add crushed whole tomatoes and the aromatics like thyme and garlic and thinly sliced garlic, by the way, even rosemary too, and then everything back into the pool. And you get a vegetable stew that you can infuse at the end with some leaves of basil and let simmer. And you have this really wonderful, hearty, vegetarian approach to, I will say, something that's that's meaty and umami and delicious, but you never miss the meat. Now, What to do with the ratatouille, no matter which way you make it, once you've made it with love, well, you can top crostini with ratatouille, a few tablespoons for a luscious appetizer, and you sprinkle with a little bit of Parmesan cheese, or you can top it with pasta or toss pasta with it for a vegetarian indulgence, or you could put a poached egg on top for a very veggie breakfast, one of my favorite things. Yum. And um, that, therefore, is a masterclass in ratatouille. I will post my best recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please do check it out. And right now, it's time for this week's food news three things that foodies need to know. You may be surprised to learn that unfrosted Pop-Tarts actually contain more calories than ones with frosting. Now, I don't personally eat Pop-Tarts, but I think this is fascinating dinner party conversation. The unfrosted Pop-Tarts have a slightly thicker crust, which compensates for the lack of frosting, which therefore results in a few more calories per serving, confirmed by a Kellogg's representative. So now the mystery of frosted versus unfrosted Pop-Tarts has finally been solved. I'm sure you feel better. I know I do. Uh, The next note of food news for this week, 
Austin, Texas restaurants and restaurateurs may get all the ink, but it's Houston's culinary scene that is thriving thanks to an influx of diverse homegrown imported kitchen talent. The largest city in the Lone Star State has more ethnic restaurants than ever, and Houston is actually being dubbed the new American Creole city of the South. It happens to be because following Hurricane Katrina, which, by the way, marks its 10th anniversary this month, displaced residents from the Gulf Coast increasingly arrived in Houston because it was just a 350-mile trek from New Orleans. And so now there's this wonderful new Creole cuisine popping up in Houston, which means we all need to take a road trip. And then, of course, the cookie evolution continues. And, oh, I am grateful. Have you had an Oreo Thin yet? Well, the Oreo Thin is described as a thin and crispy sandwich cookie, and it is now available nationwide. They're about half the width of the original. They are lesser calories. The circumference remains the same, so you can just dip as you always have. Um, they come in original golden and mint varieties, and I think that they're an excuse to eat three more. Yay for the Oreo Thin. Okay, and that's the food news you need to know this week. There are a few other things you won't want to miss. Posted, by the way, at chefjamie.com, like my weekly dish of veal milanese with arugula and white beans. I love veal milanese. It's the Italian classic, one of my favorite meals. And you can always ask your butcher to pound the veal chops for you, but leave the bone in for extra flavor. I have a carrot cake cupcake, a summer corn cake, oh, and a cocktail that I've entitled Kissed by the Sun. You know, the Tom Collins cocktail that everyone loves, the classic made with gin and lemon and soda? It's actually gaining popularity once again and just in time for the end of summer heat wave. But I've made the Tom Collins better, in my opinion, with the addition of limoncello. So check out my Kissed by the Sun cocktail, once again posted at chefjamie.com. And if you'd like to get these recipes, by the way, stealable early before you listen to this Sunday show, sign up for my newsletter, top right corner of the website. I'll send you all the info you need to know before the end of the work week and just in time for the weekend. Don't touch your dial. We have a stellar show coming up this hour. The legendary Reyes, Frankie Pellegrino, the son of, of course, the infamous owner. He is Frankie Pellegrino Jr. and he's dishing on Sunday gravy and who doesn't love Rayo's? He's coming up next. Plus Shimon and Tamar Rothstein, they are no doubt the preeminent food photographers of today and they're stopping by to teach us a lesson in light, dimension, and composition. And we have dinner solved with family favorites everyone will love from the mom blogger Katie Workman. Don't touch your dial. There's more delicious conversation right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, I'll be right back. Delivering the world of food directly to your radio every Sunday, Chef Jamie Gwen. Okay, being a restaurateur, let alone a successful one, we all know has never been easy. Even when you have a legendary restaurant such as Rayo's in New York in your arsenal. 
I am always delighted when Frankie Pellegrino stops by. He is Frank Pellegrino Jr., the co-owner of the original Rayos in Harlem, where you still cannot get a seat. Rayos at Caesar's Palace, which I have fond memories of, oh, spaghetti and clams and a meatball on my last trip in Las Vegas, of course, and Rayos in Hollywood, right in my backyard, which I truly love. And it's Frankie Pellegrino Jr. that knows what a successful restaurant is made of. It's all about making guests feel like they're part of the family. Well, Frankie, as he's known to Rayo's regulars and friends, grew up helping his father and his family at the restaurant. He's waited tables, cooked, learned the family business in and out. And he is the fourth generation owner of Rayo's. He brings the same Southern Italian fare and sense of family and camaraderie to each of their locations. And because I am a Rayo's Hollywood fan, for the lemon chicken and the roasted red peppers with the raisins and the pine nuts, oh, I love that. Well, they're now becoming known for another family legacy, and it's all about Sunday gravy. Here to dish on the newest happenings at Rayo's, Frankie Pellegrino is back. Hey there, how are you, Frankie? And thank you for stopping by. Hello, Jamie. I'm well, thank you. Good, I'm um, I hope you are well, too. I am. Um, and it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Okay, um, tell us, 119 years, right? You're 119 years old, right? That is correct. Yeah, and you look fabulous, by the way. Thank heaven, yes. <laughs> I'm only showing 46 years of that 119. <laughs> and sharing the rest with, uh, with the family. Tell us how the restaurants are, um, and run through them, please. Uh, Harlem, Vegas, Hollywood. Sure. I was actually just in East Harlem at the flagship restaurant, my home away from home, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, in fact, and uh, had a wonderful time with my gang over there. My chef Dino, um, Tommy, my dad, and uh, got together, had some fun, and entertained a lot of our friends. And and still a regular only restaurant, right? I mean, it is a regulars only. There's if you have a telephone, nobody's ever picked it up. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and you just get this this message from my cousin Susan saying, <laughs> "Please don't leave any messages for reservations. <laughs> we are fully booked for the next six hundred years." <laughs> I can't even get a reservation in this restaurant. You have no idea how I have to beg him and haw. Um, I don't even get to eat there. I only get to eat there when I work there, and usually I'm cooking for myself. <laughs> However, just to be a part of that environment is so vibrant and yeah. dynamic and mm-hmm. such an eclectic mix of people. Um, you really kind of feel like you're home on a Sunday. Um, you know, you have your aunt who's a little eccentric and your uncle who wants to go smoke cigars or something where he shouldn't be. But, uh, you know, you just get together and have some laughs and some good food and mm. some great hospitality. That's part of the of the legend, the living the living legend that is Rayo's, yes. And it makes itself because the restaurant is truly a reflection. All of the restaurants are really a reflection of our guests and um that's something we pride ourselves on. At least I do, because mm. um, with without them, it wouldn't be what it is. And it's just a place where people can be themselves. They can take off their cloaks and hang them at the door. Shoulders go down. A sigh of relief is breathed out, 
and uh, you just have fun and, and soak it all up. And before you know it, you're talking to the people who are sitting next to you at the other table, mm-hmm. and you might break out into song. Um, and, and I'm really happy and proud to say that that's the experience in all of the restaurants, in Las Vegas, at Caesars, um, Los Angeles particularly. Um, Los Angeles has a really wonderful mix of people and you know, diverse tastes and music and food and culture and wine. So it, it's really been um, an exciting adventure there, mm-hmm. and I think it's all helped tremendously with um, our, our, our culinary style and our evolution of our own signature dishes. Um, and it's great. However, the hospitality remains the same. When you're there, it's your place. And, and that is, it's, that's what Rayo's is. Yeah, it's it's quintessential hospitality. It is. And it makes me think of Danny Meyer and, you know, his his concept really very much which stemmed from your family legacy of of hospitality as the as the key goal every day. And you set that pace, that standard for restaurateurs and for um chefs and for proprietors to rise to that next level consistently every day. And then there's the food that comes along with it because I really can't get enough of the roasted peppers with the raisins and the pine nuts. Um, My husband knows when we're at Rayo's Hollywood, do not touch that plate. That plate is mine. If you want some, you'll have to order your own. I mean, there, there are signature dishes that everybody loves. And I love lemon chicken and I love a meatball, of course. But today is Sunday. And I'm very excited that you are sharing the newest addition to the Rayo's Hollywood menu, and that is Sunday gravy, right? Yes. It's an old tradition, but brought to the spotlight um, for the very first time in our genre of uh, dishes that we prepare. But before I go any further with that, I have to humbly thank you. Um, for giving me such honor as putting me in the same sentence and, and league as Danny Meyer. Hmm. He is, uh, to me, a mentor and a role model and really uh, an example of what hospitality is all about. Hmm. So I thank you for oh, that. Oh, I'm most, humbled. I think Danny Meyer would be humbled, Frankie, just so you know. I loved setting the table, in fact. And I know you have a new book project working, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, with with kudos to, to Danny, go back to Sunday Gravy, please. Well, Sunday Gravy is a longstanding Italian tradition, particularly in southern Italy. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we were folks of little means um, at the turn of the century. And we had to make the most out of whatever we had. And, and that's what Sunday is all about. It's about a big gathering of family and friends to come sit down and enjoy a marvelous, spectacular feast of, of beef and mm. meat, pork, and beautiful tomato sauce, um, all cooked together um, over a few hours. And the end result is just incredible. It is Rayo's the original, Rayo's the never to be compared or duplicated. 
It is the beautiful authenticity of Southern Neapolitan Italian cuisine on both coasts and with an outpost in Vegas, of course. It's Rayo's. There's nothing like it. And when you stop into their Hollywood location, of course, you will find Frankie Pellegrino Jr. there. Uh, it's the dining hotspot in Manhattan that you'll never really be able to get a table at. But truth be told, you have other options. It's true. I mean, you made Vegas and L.A. for those for those of us that are not celebrity. It's not about everybody's a celebrity. Well, for to you, they are. That's true. Pretty cool. That's <laughs> true. I have to agree with that, no doubt. Um, it is the, the famous Rayos. And again, I always love when you stop by, Frankie. We will see you at the restaurant soon. We can't wait for Sunday gravy. Well, I look forward to seeing you, hosting you, and everyone else who's listening. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, and thank course. you so much for your kind words, oh, my darling. Of course. Always, always support for Rayos since 1896. You can uh, grab your table to find a seat at rayosrestaurants.com. He is Frankie Pellegrino Jr., always uh, continuing the legacy. And there is more right here in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen will be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen. In your radio, you've tuned in to the best culinary conversation. Food is art. Food as art? That's something entirely different. A great photograph is never a fluke. It's about the details like composition, lighting, and styling. And no two people know that better than Shimon and Tamar Rothstein. They are the preeminent food photographers of today. Their work is featured in leading magazines worldwide, and they have photographed award-winning cookbooks for some of the world's most respected chefs. And they are here to teach you a few tricks of the trade. Whether you're a seasoned photographer or a novice holding nothing more than a smartphone, this conversation is all about the world of food and how photography so beautifully plays into that. I am delighted to be joined by photographers and food photographers as well, Shimon and Tamar Rothstein. I'm glad to have you both. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> very, very happy to be here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad, Tamar. I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation. I have been through every slideshow of yours. I think that your photography and more specifically your food focus is really extraordinary and you are being touted as the best of the best in the business. So um, teach us what you can, please. Um, first and foremost, what makes a food photo good? Wow. That's first. Thank you so much for what you said just yes. now. And, you know, it is about light always about light and it doesn't matter what you take a picture if it's an apple or uh, just a plate that you eat right now the light makes it everything so if you know and you can tell what is the ambient light now that mm -hmm. can make 
a huge difference. I know that it's always been told to me, never use the flash on your smartphone. And I know that we're, we're speaking very elementary about food photography, but so many of us sit in our favorite restaurants and we take pictures of what we're eating and we post on social media. And sometimes you don't have a fancy camera or a zoom lens. So let's start with the basics. Maybe a couple of tips, Shimon, as far as uh, taking photos of our own food. Um, tips on, on taking picture or video smartphone phone in restaurant, I not recommend it uh, usually. I, <laughs> I love to eat the food. I, I, when you spend a lot of money, especially in restaurant, I yes. love to eat the food. Yes, I use the lighting on my smartphone just to read the menu. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> usually that's what I do with that. But um, um, if, if you're sitting by the, uh, near to a um, light source, like by the window, so you can use the window light. That's, uh, uh, I can give you that as a tip to, to capture much better and nice uh, picture with your smartphone. Certainly. And yes, definitely not to use the ambient light or the flashlight on smartphone either. But we tried um, using um, this light of the smartphone. We asked our friend to open the light. Yes, to turn the light on, like on their phone versus what you're holding at the time. Yeah, so if they're holding the light from one side and your friend other one, so you have two sources of light and you can make that dish look better. Interesting. And also an angle, so if you want to take a, a higher angle, like bird's eye, uh-huh. it's yes. better. Okay, so lifting the phone up higher. Yes, really 90 degree, like a bird's eye, and that angle will give you a neutral surrounding usually would be the map or hmm. maybe the the cover yes. the table cover and and also you just pay attention to what's what's around you because people usually they don't see the background you know they see that they see as they think so if you look at the target you only see the food but you would never pay attention to the elements or utensils or things around it. Is that, that's such a, a beautiful concept, Tamar. Is that how you bring out the beauty of each chef's dishes? How do you differentiate when you're shooting for a, a cookbook for Suzanne Goen or Eric Repair or uh, Chef Marcus Samuelson, whom I adore and graces this show often? He's a tremendous talent, but his passion is so evident. How do you bring out their vision in the plate. How does it really scream that chef's work of art when you photograph? Well, we do a lot of research before. So mm. we learn what they love, what they're... Uh, and we talk to them. So we try to understand their concepts, their point of view. Each of them is individual and they have their own vision and their own... You know, they, they have a different voice and it's beautiful. So we... We have conversations, we research with Marcus Samuelson, we looked at Swedish uh, movies like um, Bergman just to choose the, the colors, um, mm. compositions. So, you know, make it, with Suzanne, for instance, we didn't use lighting, only the sun. We really, it was very important for us to capture the light of California uh, the sunlight was amazing, and she's she's like cooking with the sun, and it's and Shimon, I remember he was very tuned to what she 
love for the color. I remember for the cover, um, he took parsimon and he he shot it. Yes, because he remembered that she loves. Persimmon so much? Yeah, she, she does love persimmon. Yes, I know from the cover of the book. Yes, persimmon. Uh-huh. So she loved persimmons, and we just, and Shimon remembered it because hmm. we were talking before. And it was so, and without telling her, we just, he just shot it, and she was thrilled. We'll take a, a quick pause. When we come back, more with the preeminent food photographers of today on light, dimension, and composition. More with Shimon and Tamar Rothstein, you and me, Chef Jamie Gwen, right after this. We're back and we're dishing on food photography with... Food photographers Shimon and Tamar Rothstein. There, there's a rusticity to Suzanne Goen's cooking that is no doubt uh, brought to life in her dishes, but also like through the natural light that you used, it has this really beautiful comfort feeling to it. And I thought that you made that come alive. What is the difference between shooting Shimon for cookbooks or versus magazines. I mean, your work has been featured in every uh, prominent newspaper, in every uh, food lover's magazine, in cookbooks galore. Do you shoot differently depending upon the editorial? I think the difference, the difference between uh, uh, food styling that's making the food of, for the magazine, that uh, it's very technology, it's very technique, and, and, and it has to work very well for the the person in the house, if you take this magazine and start to follow the recipe, you have to work with chef. Usually you work with the essence of the chef. You see his dream. You see his, the way he thinks, the way he tastes, the way he combines every ingredient together. And, and, uh, and he put it in a plate. And, and, and that's, that's the huge difference between working with the food stylist or with the chef. With the chef. Mm. You make a connection with his mind. Yes. And, and, and it, both of them, it's fun to do, and we love to do both of them. But with the chef, to spend four or five days, or with Eric, that we spend one month together, um, you learn uh, all the time, and you're exposed to different kind of, of uh, lifestyle, of how you create with food uh, uh, out, and that's... Mm. that's the beauty of that to working with chefs is fascinating. Yeah, it's a process. It's a whole process. So you grow, you know, from one. And you mentioned uh, Suzanne Rustic food. You know, it was her style, so she never styled it for. And it was a fine balance between shooting the food the way it is right. and making it look beautiful. Yes, she's very true to her own style. Um, the photography is beautiful and there's so much to learn even just from viewing your photos, but I am very grateful that you shared some of your secrets and we of course look forward to seeing your continued food photography plastered everywhere. Shimon and Tamar Rothstein are a husband and wife pair who specialize in what they call photographic choreography and it is really an extraordinary language. They take on food and dance and fashion and people like no other. And of course, it is the food photography for me that just creates the most 
grand images of uh, delicious perfection, I will call it. Congratulations to both of you on not only your extraordinary education, um, having um, studied and grown up in Israel, I know both of you, and uh, the last 14 years in New York, um, you have brought um, really beautiful food to life. And um, and once again, I, I thank you and I congratulate you and uh, will continue to follow you. Thank, thank you. A pleasure, Tamara and Shimon. You can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more at Shimon Tamar. Savor the flavor every Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Welcome back. Katie Workman is a cook, a writer, a mom of two, an enthusiastic advocate for family meals, an activist in hunger issues, and the author of the beloved Mom 100 cookbook. The follow-up, her second cookbook, this summer just released, entitled Dinner Solved. It's filled with 100 recipes to feed your whole family. Katie writes the Mom 100 blog, which won the blog Her Voices of the Year Award. She's the co-founder of Cookster, and she still finds time to cook, and she's joining us live. Congratulations on the new book, Katie. Glad to have you. Thank you so much, Jamie. Nice to be here. Thank you. Okay, um, I love that you say don't be a short order cook, because mind you, I'm a very good auntie, but my girlfriends with kids find themselves, as I know most and many moms do, making multiple dishes or adjusting accordingly. So how do you get one dish on the table to feed your whole family? So the idea, it just it comes down to a notion called the fork in the road. And that's the simple idea that you can take a dish, start making it, and that there's a point that you can separate out part of the dish and maybe keep it on the plainer and simpler side or maybe make it more adventurous at that point. Maybe you divide it and there's a milder version and a spicy version, a vegetarian version and a meat version, but that one dish can sort of be convertible and therefore please a bunch of different people with a bunch of different tastes. Okay, so you call them a fork in the road. That's a flexible recipe, right? So give us an example. What's for dinner tonight? Well, for dinner tonight um, could be pork meatballs and you can make them with maple syrup and a little bit of seasoning and have them be nice and on the softer, milder, mm. slightly sweet side. Yummy. And then half of that, after you make meatballs with half of it, then you can add some more seasonings to the mixture, some cayenne, some chili powder, spike it up, and then half of them get to be spicy pork meatballs, spicy barbecue pork meatballs. So you have two versions of meatballs. You have really made one meatball, one batch of meatballs, but you have can put them in two different plates and then serve up a bowl of rice and a salad and... Those who want the spicy ones, grab those. And those sure. who want the milder ones, grab those. Yeah, dinner's ready. I think that's very smart, actually. And then what do you do with uh, the leftovers? Because you like to reinvent delicious new meals. And I do as well. Albeit, I don't like to eat the same thing every day. But does the pork meatball become 
some sort of meatloaf because for that I'm in. <laughs> there, now I have you. I, what, what, what happened with the meatballs is that they might become a sub sandwich later in the week. Okay. A drizzle of like croissant sauce or something, some shredded lettuce. Nice. And, but a lot of the recipes in the book do have real leftover intentions, like the carnitas, for instance. You make carnitas, you have this great carnita taco night, and then later in the week the carnitas become... Um, they go into enchiladas, and you've got this great pork enchilada dish. Or maybe you have make the Spanish pot roast, and you've got this great Spanish pot roast with green olives and smoked paprika and a little mm. saffron, and you have that over the noodles. Save some of the pot roast, save some of the sauce, chop it up. Later in the week, you're going to add some onions, some more flavoring, some tomato, some crushed tomatoes, broth, rice. Now you have beef and tomato and rice soup for a dinner later in the week. See, and I think your rules don't just apply to those with kids or a full family table. I think these tools and tricks are a great way to make more homemade meals, knowing that you can diversify your menus, knowing that you can, you know, mix it up and make something new a few days later or take lunch to work in the form of a, of a meatball sandwich. I mean, that really applies to, to great cooks everywhere. I love that you jack up the flavor too. There's this great list in your book of um, single ingredients that really add like an exceptional burst. And I'm with you. I do not believe that we use enough horseradish, tepanade, pesto, anchovies, like the big, bold flavors in our cooking. Yeah, such an easy way to elevate the flavor of something without a whole lot of work on your part. And such an easy way to to take a dish that's, you know, milder or sort of, you know, appeals to everybody, but you want something with a little bit more oomph. I mean, there's nothing like crushing an anchovy into a quick pan sauce to give it like this burst of big flavor. Yeah, definitely so. Okay, I need to go back to breakfast for a moment because we we went straight to dinner. Um, I love the idea of a ricotta berry breakfast crostini. And I happen to agree with you that a piece of toast is the base for lots of delicious things. Your kids will eat ricotta cheese, honey, strawberries, uh, toasted bread? Uh, sure. Why wouldn't they? Uh, that's see, delicious. I, I know. How, who wouldn't, right? I mean, that's that's the perfect breakfast snack. Yeah, and then you can make a version if somebody in your house likes savory for breakfast or if you just want to change it up, you know, make several sl- slices of toast and you can do the ricotta honey mixture on some of them, put some strawberries on those, and then the other ones might get a, some slivers of mozzarella and a few pieces of prosciutto draped over it. Oh, and by nice. the way, I wouldn't be sad to see those with a glass of wine later in the day as well. Katie Workman's recipes are doable. They're crowd-pleasing. They're comforting. They're flavorful. They're family-friendly. And this is a book, no doubt, a cookbook that will be your definite go-to. Congratulations, Katie. Thanks for all the uh, delicious inspiration. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk with well, you. Well, thank you. and glad to talk to you too. I hope you'll come back soon. I would love to. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. But since the culinary landscape is ever evolving, I hope that you won't miss a Sunday of delicious conversation with me. Always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I will leave you with my last bite, I like to call it, my last ounce of enthusiastic and scrumptious conversation. It is a delicious dish this week with only a trio of ingredients. And you know, I love a three ingredient recipe. So get your grill on. You could either grill or broil 
a few pork chops seasoned liberally with salt and pepper, and then combine apricot preserves and a splash of balsamic vinegar and mix them together and glaze the pork chops. Super simple and super good. They're sweet and tangy and meaty all in one bite. I love that combination of pork, apricot, and balsamic vinegar and the jam is sort of that go-to helper. I will say, it makes a really great glaze. And by the way, you can thank me later. I will post the recipe once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next Sunday because this is where the most passionate food and wine lovers listen. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week. I hope you continue to eat well. Well.